Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 331. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, before we get started this week, wanted to remind you folks out there that we have a new podcast up, Drabble Classics, which features rerun stories and episodes from the back corners of the Drabble Vault, where we also keep our slush readers chained. Help. Help me. <laughs> Help me indeed. There's a big old backlog of archived Drabblecast episodes since we started way back in early 2007, and a lot of great stories you might not have had a chance to hear yet. So Drabble Classics is a new bi-weekly podcast featuring a grab bag of stories from the archives, and it's just what the doctor ordered for new fans looking to get their tentacles wet, old fans wanting a simple stroll down memory lane, or people with doctors that have absolutely no idea how to practice medicine. Well, they say that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, so here goes. Charity Hilton is the charismatic host and editor of Drabble Classics, and she's doing a great job and has a natural voice for radio. Just released a story you can only hear and read here on the Drabblecast, The Tentacled Sky by the late Jay Lake. Very cool, very creepy story. Drabble Classics is free. All you've got to do is go to drabblecast.org and click on the subscribe here link in the Drabble Classics section there to the left of the page. But if you'd rather do more than just soak in the classics, you can get involved further and vote in the author cage fights we've got going on in the Drabblecast forums at forums.drabblecast.org to determine which author shows up in the next episode. Currently, heavyweight Robert Reed is duking it out with longtime DC favorite Tim Pratt. There can be only one. Vote today. And speaking of which, there being only one, that is, that kind of leads us into our episode theme this week. It's either them or us. When two opposing forces meet and there's no talking anyone down, only one's going to be left standing, the other sent packing. And what better way to start than with a hundred-word story? Trouble. Our Drabble this week is called Bum's Rush by Nathan Lee, a.k.a. Scattercat, read by Rish Outfield. This is one from the Dribblecast, the Drabblecast's fan-produced fancast, where fans read theirs and other stories from the writing section of our discussion forums. More on that later. Let's hit the story first. Bum's Rush by Scattercat, read by Rish Outfield. Sir, you presume too much. Be gone! He swirled his bathrobe at me. I sighed. Oh, Jack's man. King Jacksonia, Duke of Pineville, and protector of South Charlotte. You're hallucinating, dude. Guards, remove this wastrel. Okay, fine. I'm leaving. But I'm calling tomorrow. I'm bringing you some help. I headed for the door. Jackson laughed, waving his toilet paper brush <laughs> scepter. No, not too roughly. He was once a friend. And now, let the joust begin! I closed the door and shrugged. My arms tingled with the touch of gauntleted hands. I was absolutely certain 
I did not hear anything like a whinny inside. The Dribblecast is a podcast made by fans of the Drabblecast. The Drabblecast is a podcast made by fans of the unusual, the bizarre, the strange. The strange, unusual, and bizarre is made by you. Drabblecast.org and dribblecast.posterous.com In a steel cage! See, you don't need a house to joust. Hell, you don't even need a horse. All you need is a good imagination and a good enemy. So the address Rish mentioned there at the end has actually changed. Now it's just dribblecast.org. None of that posturous stuff. Much easier to remember, dribblecast.org. And there are 159 episodes of fan-produced shows there so far. But I'd still love to see even more people producing stories there. You can never have enough community involvement, am I right? So to encourage the more shy among you folks out there to get behind those microphones and start reading, I'm going to start officially selecting one fan-produced Drabble from the Dribblecast feed once a month to run on the main show. Remember, anyone can participate in the Dribblecast, regardless of experience writing, narrating, or working with audio. And you can pick from any of the stories posted in the extensive Community Stories section of the Drabblecast forums. They're all public domain. Or you can write your own and produce it. You can format your episode of the Dribblecast however you like. It's your show, friend. Keep things simple or add your own hosting and editorial flair. Up to you. The full guidelines are in the Dribblecast Call to Action thread listed at the top of our discussion forums. But the basic gist of it is just pick a hundred-word story you like from the Drabble section, read and record it, and send the MP3 as an attachment to post at dribblecast.org. That's post at dribblecast.org, along with your name, the story author, and the story title. Boom. It'll shortly be up at dribblecast.org. And who knows, possibly even here on the main show. Remember, have fun with it. All right, on to our feature story this week, Night of the Cooters by Howard Waldrop. Mr. Waldrop's considered to be one of the best short story writers in the business, having been called the resident weird mind of our generation and an author who writes like a honky-tonk angel. His famous novella, The Ugly Chickens, which we ran back in January as episode 310, won both the Nebula and the World Fantasy Awards in 1981, and his work's been gathered in numerous anthologies, including Going Home Again, Dream Factories and Radio Pictures, Howard Who, and Things Will Never Be the Same, selected short fiction of Howard Waldrop, 1980-2005. to His most recent book is another new collection, Horse of a Different Color, and it will not disappoint. This story was first published in Omni Magazine, April 1987. So, without further ado, we bring you Night of the Cooters by Howard Waldrop. Sheriff Lindley was asleep on the toilet in the Pachuco County Courthouse when someone started pounding on the door. Bert! The voice yelled as the sheriff jerked awake. 
God dang, said the lawman. The Waco newspaper slid off his lap onto the floor. He pulled his pants up with one hand and the water box overhead with the other. He opened the door. Chief Deputy Sweets stood before him, a complaint slip in his hand. Dang it, Sweets, said the sheriff. I told you never to bother me in there. It's the hottest Thursday in the history of Texas. You woke me out of a hell of a dream. The deputy waited, wiping sweat from his forehead. There were two big circles, like half moons, under the arms of the blue chambray shirt. I was 14, maybe 15 years old, and I was an Aztec or a Mixtec or something, said the sheriff. Anyways, I was buck naked, and I was standing on one of them ball courts with the little bitty stone rings 20 foot up on one wall, and they was presenting me to Moctezuma. I was real proud, and the sun was shining, but it was real still and cool down there on the Valley of Mexico. I look up at the grandstand, and there's Moctezuma, and all his high muckety mucks with feathers and, you know, all that stuff hanging off of him, and more gold than a circus wagon. And there were these other guys, conquistadors and stuff, with beards and rusty helmets and Italian priests with crosses you could have barred a livery stable door with. One of Moctezuma's men was explaining how he's fixing to play ball for the gods and things. I knew in my dream I was captain of the team. I had a name that sounded like some bird fart in Aztec talk, and they mentioned it in the name of the captain off the other team, too. Well, everything was going all right, and I was prouder and prouder, until the guy doing the talking let slip that whatever team won was going to be paraded around Tenochtitlan and given women and food and stuff like that. And then tomorrow a.m., they's going to be cut up and simmered real slow, served up with chilies and onions and tomatoes. <laughs> well, I tell you, boy, you never seed such a fight as broke out then. There was a yelling, and a priest was swinging across, spears and axes flying around like it was an Irish funeral. And the next thing I know, you're a banging on my door, waking me up, bringing me back to Pachuco County. What the hell do you want? Well, uh, Mr. Despain wants you to come over to his place right away, Sheriff. Oh, he does, huh? Uh, that's right, Sheriff. He says he's got some miscreants he wants you to arrest. Everybody else round here has desperados. Despain has miscreants. I'll be so goddamn glad when the town council gets around to moving the city limits 50 feet to one side of his place. I won't know what to do. Every darn time anybody farts too loud, he calls me. Lindley and Sweets walked back to the office at the other end of the courthouse. Four deputies sat around with their feet propped up on desks. They rocked forward respectfully and watched as the sheriff went to the hat pegs. On one of the dowels was a sweat-stained hat with turned-down points at front and back. The side brims were twisted in curves. The hat angled up to end in a crown that looked like the business end of a Phillips screwdriver. Under the hat was a holster with a Navy Colt 41 that looked like someone had used it to drive railroad spikes all the way to the Continental Divide. Leaning under them was a 10-gauge pump shotgun with a barrel sawed off just in front of the foregrip. On the other peg was an immaculate new round-top Stetson of brown felt with a snakeskin band half as wide as a fingernail running around it. The deputies stared. Lindley picked up the Stetson. The deputies rocked back in their chairs and resumed yakking. 
Hey, sweets, said the sheriff at the door. Change that goddamn calendar on your desk. It ain't Wednesday, August 17th. It's Thursday, August 18th. Uh, sure enough, sheriff. And you boys try not to play checkers so loud you wake up the judge, okay? Uh, sure thing, sheriff. Lindley went down the courthouse steps onto the rock walk. He passed the two courthouse cannons he and the deputies fired off three times a year, March 2nd, July 4th, and Robert E. Lee's birthday. Each cannon had a pyramid of ornamental cannonballs in front of it. Waves of heat came off the cannons, the ammunition, the telegraph wires overhead, and, in the distance, the rails of the twice-a-day spur line from Waxahachie. The town was still a rusty shovel. The 45-star United States flag hung like an old dried dish rag from its stanchion. From looking at the town, you couldn't tell the nation was about to go to war with Spain over Cuba, that China was full of unrest, and that 5,000 miles away, a crazy German count was making airships. Lindley had seen enough changes in his 68 years. He'd been born in the bottom of an Ohio keelboat in 1830, was in bloody Kansas when John Brown came through, fought for the Confederacy first as a corporal than a sergeant major, from Chickamauga to the wilderness, and had seen more skirmishes with hostile tribes than most people would ever read in a dozen wide-awake library novels. It was hotter than under an upside-down washpot on a tin-shed roof. The sheriff's wagon horse seemed asleep as it trotted, head down, puffs hanging in the still air like brown shrubs made of dust around its hooves. There were ten, maybe a dozen people in sight in the whole town. Those few on the street moved like molasses, only as far as they had to, from shade to shade. Anybody with sense was asleep at home, with wet towels hung over the windows, or sitting as still as possible with a funeral parlor fan in their hands. The sheriff licked his big, droopy mustache and hoped nobody nodded to him. He was already too hot and tired to tip his hat. He leaned back in the wagon seat and straightened his bad leg, a Yankee souvenir, against the boot board. His gray suit was like a boiling shroud. He was too hot to reach up and flick the dust off his new hat. He had become sheriff in the special election three years ago to fill out Sanderson's term when the governor had appointed the former sheriff attorney general. Nothing much had happened in the county since then. Gee up, he said. The horse trotted three steps before going back into its walking trance. Sheriff Lindley didn't bother her again until he pulled up at Spain's big place and said, Whoa there. The black man, who did everything for Despain, opened the gate. Sheriff, he said. Luther, said Lindley, nodding his head. Around back, Mr. Lindley. There were two boys, braggedy town kids, the Strother boy and one of the poor Chisholms, sitting on the edge of the well. The Chisholm kid had been crying. Despain was hot and bothered. He was only half-dressed, with suit pants, white shirt, vest, and stockings on, but no shoes or coat. He hadn't massacred his hair yet. He was pointing a rifle with a barrel big as a drain pipe at the two boys. 
Here they are, Sheriff. Luther saw them down in the orchard. I'm sure he saw them stealing my peaches, but he wouldn't tell me. I knew something was up when he didn't put my clothes in the usual place next to the window, so I looked out and I saw them. Good Lord, they had half a tater sack full by the time I crept round the house and caught them. I want to charge them with trespass and thievery. Well, well, said the sheriff, looking down at the sack full of evidence. He turned and pointed toward the black man. You, uh, want me to charge Luther there with collusion and abetting a crime? Neither Lindley's nor Luther's face betrayed any emotion. Of course not, said Despain. Why, I've told him time and time again he's too soft on filchers. If this keeps happening, I'll hire another boy who enforce my orchard with buckshot. Despain was a young man with eyes like a Weimariner's. As Deputy Sweets once said, he had the kind of face you couldn't hit just once. He owned half the town of Pachuco City. The other half paid him rent. Get in the wagon, boys, said Lindley. Aren't you gonna cover them with your weapon? asked Despain. You ought to know by now, Mr. Despain, that when I wear this suit, I ain't got nothing but a three-shot pocket pistol on me. Besides, he looked at the two boys in the wagon bed. They know if they give me any guff, I'll jerk a bow knot in one of them and bite the other one's ass off. Well, I don't think there's any need for profanity, said Despain. It's too damn hot for anything else, said Lindley. I'll clamp them in a used gato and have sweets run the papers over your office tomorrow morning. I wish you'd take them out on one of them rural roads somewhere and flail the tar out of them teaching about property rights, said Despain. The sheriff tipped his hat back and looked up at Despain's three-story house with the parlor so big you could hold a rodeo in it. Then he looked back at the businessman who finally lowered the rifle. Well, I know you'd like that, said Lindley. I seem to remember that most of the fellers who wrote the Constitution were pretty well off. But some of the other rich people thought they had funny ideas, but they were really pretty smart. One of the things they were smart about was the Bill of Rights. You know what that is, Mr. Despain? You heard of it? The reason they put in the Bill of Rights wasn't to give all the little people without jobs or money a lot of breaks from the law. Why they put that in there was for if the people without jobs or money ever got upset and turned on them, they could ask for the same justice everybody else got. Despain looked at him with disgust. I've never liked your homespun parables, and I don't like the way you sheriff this county. Yeah, I don't doubt that, said Lindley. And you got sixteen months, three weeks, and two days to find someone to run against me. Good evening, Mr. Despain. He climbed onto the wagon seat. Luther? Sheriff? He turned the horse around as Despain and the black man took the sack of peaches through the kitchen door into the house. The sheriff stopped the wagon near the railroad tracks where the houses began to deviate from the vertical. Jody, Billy Roy, he looked at them with eyes like chips of flint. 
Y'all are the dumbest pair of squirts that ever lived in Pachuco City. First off, half those peaches were still green. You'd have got belly aches and your mothers would have beat you within an inch of your lives, giving you so many doses of black draft, you'd have shit over ten fences all week. Now listen to what I'm saying, cause I'm only gonna say it once. If I ever hear either of you stealing anything anywhere in this county, I'm gonna put you both in school. No, Sheriff, please, no. Oh, I'll put you in there every morning, come and get you seven long hours later. I'll have the judge issue a writ keeping you there till you're 12. And if you try to run away, I'll follow you to the ends of the goddamn earth with Joe's Sweeper's bloodhounds, and I'll bring you back. They were crying now. You get on home. They were running before they left the wagon. Somewhere between the second piece of cornbread and the third helping of snap beans, a loud rumble shook the ground. Goodness sakes, said Elsie, his wife of 23 years. What can that be? I expect it's Elmer, out by the creek. He came in last week and asked if he could blast on the place. I told him it didn't matter to me as long as he did it between sun up and sun down and didn't blow his whole family of rugrats up. Jake, down at the mercantile, said Elmer bought enough dynamite to blow up Fort Worth if he'd a mind to. All but the last three sticks in the store. Jake had to reorder for stump blowing time. Well, whatever could he want with all that much? Oh, that damn fool has the idea the vein in that old mine that played out in 83 might start up again on his property. He got to talking with that Smith boy. Oh, hell, what's his name? Leo? Yeah, Leo. The one that studies down in Austin, learns about stars and rocks and all that shit. Watch your language, Bertram. Oh, hell. Anyway, that boy must have put a bug up in Elmer's butt about that stuff. Bertram! said Elsie, putting down her knife and fork. Oh, hell. Anyway, I guess Elmer will blow the side off his hill and bury his house before he's through. The sheriff was reading a week-old copy of the Waco Herald while Elsie washed up the dishes. He sure missed Brand's Iconoclast, the paper he used to read, which had ceased publication when the editor was gunned down on a Waco street by an irate Baptist four months before. The Waco paper had a little squib from London, England, about there having been explosions on Mars ten nights in a row, and whether it was a sign of life on that planet or some unusual volcanic activity. Sheriff Lindley had never given volcanoes or the planet Mars much thought. Hooves came pounding down the road. He put down his paper. Sheriff, sheriff, he said in a high, mocking voice. What? asked Elsie. Then she heard the hooves and began to dry her hands on the towel on the nail above the sink. The horse stopped out front, bare feet slapped on the porch, small fists pounded on the door. Sheriff, sheriff, yelled a voice Lindley recognized as belonging to either Tommy or Jimmy Atkinson. He strode to the door and opened it. Tommy, what's all the hoorah? Uh, Jimmy, Sheriff, something fell on our pasture, tore it all to hell, knocked down the tree, killed some of our cattle, Tommy can't find his dog, Mother sent... Hold on, hold on. Something fell on your place? Like what? 
I don't know, like a big rock or something, only sparks was flying off it, and it roared and blew up. It's at the north end of the place, and... Elsie, run over and get Sweets and the boys. Have them go get Leo Smith if he ain't gone back to college yet. Sounds to me like Pachuco County's got its first shooting star. Hold on, Jimmy. I'm coming right along. Well, take my wagon. You can leave your pony here. Oh, hurry, Sheriff. It's big. It killed our cattle and tore up the fences. Well, I can't arrest it for that, said Lindley. He put on his Stetson. And I thought Elmer'd blow himself up. My, my, I ain't never seen a shooting star before. Damn, if it don't look like somebody threw a locomotive through here, said the sheriff. The Atkinson place used to have a sizable hill and the tallest tree in the county. Now it had half a hill and a big stump and beyond a huge crater. There was a huge rounded gray object buried in the dirt and torn caliche at the bottom. Waves of heat rose from it and gray ash like old charcoal fell off it into the shimmering pit. Half the town was riding out in wagons and on horseback as the news spread. The closest neighbors were walking over in the twilight, wearing their go-visiting clothes. Well, well, said the sheriff, looking down. So that's what a meteor looks like. Leo Smith was in the pit, walking around. I figured you'd be here sooner or later, said Lindley. Hello, sheriff, said Leo. It's, uh, still too hot to touch. Part of a cow's buried under the back end. The sheriff looked over at the Atkinson family. You folks is dang lucky. That thing could have come down smack on your house. Or worse, your barn. What time did it fall? Straight up and down six o'clock, said Miss Atkinson. We was setting down to supper. I saw it at the corner of my eye. Then all tarnation came down. Rocks must have been falling for ten minutes. It's pretty spectacular, Sheriff, said Leo. I'm going into town to telegraph off to the professors at the university. They'll sure want to take a look at this. Any reason other than general curiosity? asked Lindley. I've only seen pictures and handled little bitty parts of one, said Leo, but it doesn't look usual. They're generally like big rocks, all stone or iron. The outside of this one's soft and crumbly, ashy, too. There was a slight pop and a stove cooling noise from the thing. Well, you can come back into town with me if you want to. Hey, sweets, the chief deputy came over. A couple of you boys better stay here tonight. Keep people from falling in that hole. I guess if Leo's gonna wire the university, you better keep anybody from knocking chunks off it. It'll probably get pretty crowded. And if I was the Atkinsons, I'd start charging a nickel to look. Sure thing, Sheriff. Kerosene lanterns and carriage lights were moving toward the Atkinsons in the coming darkness. I'll be out here tomorrow morning, take another gander. I gotta serve a process paper on old Theobald before he lights out for his chores. If I sent one of you boys, he'd as soon shoot you as say howdy. Sure thing, Sheriff. He and Leo and Jimmy Atkinson got in the wagon and rode off toward the quiet lights of town far away. 
There was a new smell in the air. The sheriff noticed it as he rode toward the Atkinson Ranch by the South Road early the next morning. There was an odor like when something goes wrong at the telegraph office. Smoke was curling up from the pasture. Maybe there was a scrub fire started from the heat of the falling star. He topped the last rise. Before him lay devastation the likes of which he hadn't seen since the retreat from Atlanta. Great God Almighty, he said. There were dead horses and charred wagons all around. The ranch house was untouched, but the barn was burned to the ground. There were crisscrossed lines of burnt grass that looked like they'd been painted with a tar brush. He saw no bodies anywhere. Where was Sweets? Where was Luke, the other deputy? Where had the people from the wagons gone? What had happened? Lindley looked at the crater. There was a shiny rod sticking out of it, with something round on the end. From here, it looked like one of those carnival acts where a guy spins a plate on the end of a dowel rod, only this glinted like metal in the early sun. As he watched, a small cloud of green steam rose above from the pit. He saw a motion behind an old tree uprooted by a storm twelve years ago. It was Sweets. He was yelling and waving the sheriff back. Lindley rode his horse into the small draw, then came out into the open. There was movement over at the crater. He thought he saw something. Reflected sunlight flashed by his eyes, and he thought he saw a rounded silhouette. He heard a noise, like something caught in barbed wire on a windy day. He heard a humming sound then, smelled the electric smell real strong. Fire started a few feet from him, out of nowhere, and moved toward him. Then his horse exploded. <laughs> the air was an inferno. He was thrown spinning. He must have blacked out. He had no memory of what went next. When he came to, he was running as fast as he ever had toward the uprooted tree. Fire jumped all around. Luke was shooting over the tree roots with his pistol. He ducked. A long section of the trunk was washed with flames and sparks. Lindley dove behind the root tangle. What the ding dong is going on? He asked as he tried to catch his breath. He still had his new hat on, but his breeches and coat were singed and smoking. God damn, Bert, I don't know, said Sweets, leaning around Luke. We was out here all night. It was a regular party. Most of the time we was up on the lip up there. Maybe 30 or 40 people coming and going. We was all talking and hoorahing, and then we heard something about an hour ago. We looked down and I'll be damned if the whole top of that thing didn't come off like a mason jar. Bert, we was watching and these damn things started coming out. They looked like big old leather balls, but big as horses with snakes all out the front. What? Snakes! Snakes, Bert! Yeah, tentacles, Leo called them. Like an octopus. Leo'd come back from town and was here when them boogers came out. Martians, he said they was. Things from Mars. They had big ol' eyes. Big as your darn head. Everybody was pushing and shoving. Then one of them pulled on one of them gun things. Real slow-like. And just started burning up everything. 
We all ran back for whatever cover we could find. It took them a while to get up that dirt pile. They killed horses, dogs, anything you could see. Fire was everywhere. They used that thing just like the volunteer firemen used them water hoses in Waco. All right, all right, where's Leo? Sweets pointed to the draw that ran diagonally to the west. We watched a while, finally figured out they couldn't line up on the ditch all the way to the rise. Leo and the others got away up the draw. He was gonna telegraph the university about it. The bunch that got away was supposed to send people out to the town road to warn others. You probably would have run into them if you'd been coming from Theobald's place. Anyways, soon as them things saw people were getting away, they got mad as hornets, let me tell you. That's when they lit up the Atkinson's barn. A flash of fire leapt in the roots of the tree, jumped back thirty feet into the burnt grass behind them, then moved back and forth in a curtain of sparks. Well, Lindley said, this won't do. These things done attacked citizens in my jurisdiction, and they killed my gosh darn horse. He turned to Luke. Be real careful, and you get back to town. Get the posse up, telegraph the rangers, and tell them to burn leather getting here. Then get a hold of Skip Whitworth. Have him bring out the gun. Skip Whitworth sat behind the tree trunk and pulled the cover from the six-foot rifle at his side. Skip was in his late fifties. He'd once been a sniper in the War for Southern Independence when he'd been in his twenties. He'd once shot a Yankee general just as the officer was bringing a forkful of beans up to his mouth. When the fork got there, there were only some shoulders and a gullet for the beans to drop into. That had been from a mile and a half away, from sixty feet up a pine tree. The rifle was an eighty-caliber octagonal-barrel breech-loader that used two and a half ounces of powder and a percussion cap the size of a jawbreaker for each shot. It had a telescopic sight running the entire length of the barrel. They're using that thing on the end of that stick to watch us, said Lindley. I had Sweets jump around, and every time he did, one of them cooters would come up with that dat blame fire gun and give us what for. Skip said nothing. He loaded his rifle, which had a breech-block lever the size of a crowbar, then placed another round, cap, paper cartridge, ball next to him. He drew a bead and pulled the trigger. It sounded like dynamite had gone off in their ears. The wobbling pole snapped in two halfway up. The top end flopped around back into the pit. There was a scrabbling noise above the whirring from the earthen lip. Something round came up. Skip had smoothly opened the breech, put in the ball, torn the cartridge with his teeth, put in the cap, closed the action, pulled back the hammer, and sighted before the shape reached the top. Metal glinted in the middle of the dark thing. Skip fired. There was a squeech. A whole top of the round thing opened up. It spun around and backward, things in its front working like a daddy long legs thrown on a roaring stove. Skip loaded again. There were flashes of light from the crater. Something came up shooting, fire leaping like hot sparks from a blacksmith's anvil, the air full of flames and smoke. Skip 
fired again. The fire gun flew up in the air. Snakes twisted, writhed, and disappeared. It was very quiet for a few seconds. Then there was the renewed whining of machinery and noises like a pile driver, the sounds of filing and banging. Steam came out over the crater lip. Sounds like a steel foundry in there, said Sweets. I don't like it one bit, said Lindley. Be danged if I'm gonna let him get the drop on us, though. Can you keep him down? How many are there? asked Skip. Luke and Sweet saw four or five before all hell broke loose. Probably more of them than that inside. I got three more shots. If they poke up, I'll get them. All right, I'm going to town, then out to Elmer's. Sweets will stay with you a while. If you run out of bullets, light up that draw. I don't want nobody killed. Sweets keep an eye out for the posse. I'm telegraphing the rangers again, then going to get Elmer and his dynamite. Oh boy, we're gonna fix their little red wagon for certain. Sure thing, Sheriff. The sun had just passed noon. Leo looked haggard. He'd been up all night, then at the telegraph office sending off messages to the university. Inquiries had begun to come in from as far as Baton Rouge. Leo had another from Percival Lowell out in Flagstaff, Arizona Territory. Everybody at the university thinks it's wonderful, said Leo. People in Austin would, said Lindley. They're sure these things are connected with Mars and those bright flashes of gas last month. Same something's happened in England, starting about a week ago. No one's been able to get through to London for two or three days. You telling me Mars is attacking London, England, and Pachuco City, Texas? Asked the sheriff. It seems so, said Leo. He took off his glasses and rubbed his eyes. Excuse me, Leo, said Lindley. I gotta get another telegram off to the Texas Rangers. That's funny, said Argyle, the telegraph operator. The line was working just a second ago. She began tapping with her key and fiddling with the coil box. Leo peered out the window. Hey, he said, where's the 314? He looked at the railroad clock. It was 325. In sixteen years of rail service, the train had been four minutes late, and that was after a mudslide and the storm twelve years ago. Uh-oh, said the sheriff. They were turning out of Elmer's yard with a wagon load of dynamite. The wife and eleven of the kids were watching. Easy now, Sheriff, said Elmer, who, with two of his boys and most of their guns, was riding in back with the explosives. <laughs> and how Jake sold me everything he had. I just didn't notice till we got back here that with all this stuff that some of it was already sweating a little bit. Holy shit, said Lindley. You mean to tell me we gotta go a mile an hour out there? Let's get out and throw the bad stuff off. Well, it's all mixed in, actually, said Elmer. I was sort of gonna set it all up on the hill and just put one blasting cap on the whole load. Jesus, you would have blowed up your house and Pachuco City, too. I was in a hurry, said Elmer, hanging his head. Well, it can't be helped now. We'll take it slow. Lindley looked at his watch. It was six o'clock. He heard a high-up fluttering sound. 
They looked at the sky. Coming down was a large, round, glowing object, throwing off sparks in all directions. It was curved with points, like the thing in the crater at the Atkinson place. A long, thin trail of smoke from the back end hung in the air behind it. They watched in awe as it sailed down. It went off into the horizon to the north of Pachuco City. One, said one of the kids in the wagon. Two, three. Silently, they all took up the count. At 27, there was a roaring boom, just like the night before. Five and a half miles, said the sheriff. That puts it eight miles from the other one. Leo said the ones in London came down 24 hours apart, regular as clockwork. They started off as fast as they could, under the circumstances. There were flashes of light beyond the Atkinson place in the near dusk. The lights moved off toward the north where the other thing had plowed in. It was the time of evening when your eyes can fool you. Sheriff Lindley thought he saw something that shouldn't have been there sticking above the horizon. It glinted like metal in the dim light. He thought it moved, but it might have been the motion of the wagon as they lurched down a gully. When they came up, it was gone. Skip was gone. His rifle was still there. It wasn't melted, but had been crushed, as had the three-foot-thick tree trunk in front of it. All the caps and cartridges were gone. There was a monstrous series of footprints leading from the crater down to the tree, then off into the distance to the north where Lindley thought he'd seen something. There were three footprints in each series. Sweets's hat had been mashed along with Skip's gun. Clanging and banging still came from the crater. The four of them made their plans. Lindley had his shotgun and pistol, which Luke had brought out with him that morning, though he was still wearing his burned suit and his untouched Stetson. He tied together the fifteen sweatiest sticks of dynamite he could find. They crept up, then rushed the crater. Hurry up, yelled the sheriff to the men at the courthouse. Get that cannon up them stairs. He's still coming this way, yelled Luke from up above. They had been watching the giant machine from the courthouse since it had come up from the Atkinson place, before the sheriff and Elmer and his boys made it into town. It had come across to the north, gone to the site of the second crash, and stood motionless there for quite a while. When it got dark, the deputies brought out the night binoculars. Everybody in town saw the flash of dynamite from the Atkinson place. A few moments after that, the machine had moved back toward there. It looked like a giant water tower with three legs. It had a thing like a teacher's desk bell on top of it, and something that looked like a Kodak roll film camera in front of that. As the moon rose, they saw the thing had tentacles, like thick wires hanging from between the three giant legs. The sheriff, Elmer, and his boys made it to town just as the machine found the destruction they had caused at the first landing. Site. It had turned toward town and was coming at a pace of 20 miles an hour. Hurry the hell up, yelled Luke. 
Oh, shit. He ducked. There was a flash of light overhead. The building shook. That heat gun comes out of the box on the front, he said. Look out. The building glared and shook again. Something down the street caught fire. Load that son of a bitch, said Lindley. Bob, some of you men make sure everybody's in the cyclone cellars or where they won't burn. Cut out all the damn lights. Hell, Sheriff, they know we're here, yelled a deputy. Lindley hit him with his hat, then followed the cannon up the top of the clock tower steps. Luke was cramming powder into the cannon muzzle. Sweets ran back down the stairs. Other people carried cannonballs up the steps to the tower one at a time. Leo came up. What did you find, Sheriff, when you went back? There was a cool breeze for a few seconds in the courthouse tower. Lindley breathed a few deep breaths, remembering. Pretty rough. There were some of them still working after that thing had gone. They were building another one, just like it. He pointed toward the machine, which was firing up the houses to the northeast side of town, swinging the ray back and forth. They could hear its hum. Homes and chicken coops burst into flames. A mooing cow was stilled. We threw in the dynamite and blew most of them up. One was in a machine like a steam tractor. We shot up what was left while they was hooting and hollering. Some other things in there too. Live things, maybe. But they was too blowed up to be put back together to be sure what they was. All bleached out and pale. Well, we fed everything there had died of buckshot till there was nothing left. Then we hightailed it back here on horses, left the wagon sitting. The machine came on toward the main street of town. Luke finished with the powder. There were so many men with guns on the building across the street, it looked like a brick porcupine. It must have looked this way for the James gang when they were shot up in Northfield, Minnesota. The courthouse was made of stone. Most of the wooden buildings in town were scorched or already afire. When the heat gun came this way, it blew bricks to dust, played flame over everything. The air above the whole town heated up. They had put out the lamps behind the clock faces. There was nothing but moonlight glinting off the three-legged machine, flames of burning buildings, the faraway glows of prairie fires. It looked like Pachuco City was on the outskirts of hell. Get ready, Luke, said the sheriff. The machine stepped between two burning stores, its tentacles pulling out smoldering horse tack, chains, kegs of nails, then heaving them this way and that. Someone at the end of the street fired off around. There was a high, thin ricochet off the machine. Sweets ran upstairs, something in his arms. It was a curtain from one of the judge's windows. He'd ripped it down and tied it to the end of one of the janitor's long window brushes. On it, he had lettered in tempera paint, come and take it. There was a ragged, nervous cheer from the men on the building as they read it by the light of the flames. Cute, sweets, said Lindley. Too cute. The machine turned down Main Street. A line of fire sprang up at the backside of town from the empty corrals. Oh shit, said Luke. I forgot the wadding. 
Lindley took off his hat and hit him with it. He looked at its beautiful felt in the mixed moonlight and firelight. The thing turned toward them. The sheriff thought he saw eyes way up in the belittling atop the machine. Eyes like a big cat's eyes seen through a dirty window pane. God dying, Luke. It's my best hat. But I'll be damned if I let them cooters burn down my town. He stuffed the Stetson crown first into the cannon barrel. Luke shoved it in with a ramrod, threw in two 35-pound cannonballs, pushed them home, and swung the barrel out over Main Street. The machine bent to tear up something. Okay, boys, yelled Lindley. Attract its attention. Rifle and shotgun fire winked on the rooftop. It glowed like a hot coal from the muzzle flashes. A great slather of ricochets flew off the giant machine. It turned, pointing its heat gun at the building. It was fifty feet from the courthouse steps. Now, said the sheriff. Luke touched off the powder with his cigarillo. The whole north side of the courthouse bell tower flew off and the roof collapsed. Two holes you could see the moon through appeared in the machine, one in the middle and one smashing through the dome atop it. Sheriff Lindley saw the lower cannonball come out and drop lazily toward the end of burning Main Street. All six of the tentacles of the machine shot straight into the air, and it took off like a man running with his arms above his head. It staggered as fast as a freight train through one side of a house and out the other, and ran partway up Park Street. One of its three legs went higher than its top. It hopped around like a crazy man on crutches before its feet got tangled in a horse pasture fence and it went over backwards with a shudder. A great cloud of steam came out of it and hung in the air. No one in the courthouse tower heard the sound of the steam. They were all deaf as posts from the explosion. The barrel of the cannon was burst all along the end. The men on the other roof were jumping up and down, clapping each other on the backs. The come and take it sign on the courthouse had two holes in it, neater than you could have made with a biscuit cutter. First a high whine, then a dull roar, then something like normal hearing came back to the sheriff's left ear. The right one still felt like a kid had his fist in there. Dang it, sweets, he yelled. How much powder did Luke use? Huh? Luke was banging on his head with both his hands. How much powder did he use? Oh, uh, two, two and a half cans, said Sweets. It only takes a half a can of ball, yelled the sheriff. He reached for his hat to hit Luke with, touched his bare head. Oh, damn, I feel naked. Come on, we're not through with this yet. We got fires to put out and some hash to settle. Luke was still standing, shaking his head. The whole town was cheering. It looked like a pot lid slowly boiling open, moving just a little. Every time the end unscrewed a little more, ashes and cinders fell off into the second pit. 
There was a piled ridge of them. The back turned again, moved a few inches, quit. Then it wobbled. There was a sound like a stove being jerked up a chimney, and the whole back end rolled open like a mad bank vault and fell off. There were 184 men and 11 women, all standing behind the open end of the thing, their guns pointing toward the interior. At the exact center were Sweets and Luke with the other courthouse cannon. This time there was one can of powder, but the barrel was filled to the end with everything from the blacksmith shop floor. Busted window glass, nails, horseshoes, bolts, stirrup buckles, and broken files and saws. Eyes appeared in the dark interior. Remember the Alamo, said the sheriff. Everybody and the cannon Fired. When the third meteor came in that evening, south of town at 13 minutes past six, they knew something was wrong. It wobbled in flight, lost speed, and dropped like a long, heavy leaf. They didn't have to wait long for this one to cool and open. When the posse arrived, the thing was split in two and torn. Heat and steam came from the inside. One of the pale things was creeping forlornly across the ground with great difficulty. It looked like a thin gingerbread man made of glass with only a knob for a head. It's probably hurting from the gravity, said Leo. Fix it, sweets, said Lindley. Sure thing, Sheriff. There was a gunshot. No fourth meteor fell, though they had scouts out for 20 miles in all directions, and the railroad tracks and telegraph wires were fixed again. I've been doing some figuring, said Leo. If there were 10 explosions on Mars last month, and these things started landing in England last Thursday week, then we should have got the last three. But there won't be any more. Oh, you been figuring, huh? Sure have. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Sheriff Lindley stood on his porch. It was sundown on Sunday, three hours after another meteor should have fallen. Had there been one? Leo rode up. I saw Sweets and Luke heading toward the Atkinson place with more dynamite. What are they doing? Oh, they're just blowing up every last remnant of them things, lock, stock, and asshole. But the professors from the university will be here tomorrow to look at their ships and machines. You can't destroy them. Oh, yeah? Shit on the University of Texas and the horse it rode in on, said Lindley. My jurisdiction runs from Deer Piss Creek to Buenos Frijoles, back to Old Antungi, up the Little Creek Fork of the natural branch of Mud River, back to the creek and everything in between. If I says something gets blowed up, it's on its way to goddamn kingdom come. He put his arms on Leo's shoulders. Besides, what little grass grows in this country is supposed to be green? 
and what's growing around them things, well, that's red, and I really don't like that. But Sheriff, I've got to meet Professor Lowell in Waxahachie tomorrow. Listen, Leo, I appreciate what you've done, but I'm an old man. I've been kept up by Martians for three nights. I lost my horse and my new hat, and they busted my favorite gargoyle off the courthouse. I'm going in and getting some sleep, and I only want to be woken up for the second coming of goddamn Jesus Christ himself. You hear me? Leo jumped on his horse and rode for the Atkinson place. Sheriff Lindley crawled into bed and went to sleep as soon as his head hit the pillow. He had a dream. He was a king in Babylon, and he lay on a couch at the top of a ziggurat, just like the Tower of Babel in the Bible. He surveyed the city and the river. There were women all around him, and men with curly beards and big headdresses. Occasionally, someone would feed him a large fig from a golden bowl. His dreams were not interrupted by the sounds of dynamiting, first from one side of town, then another, and then another. that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. I can never remember if you're supposed to mess with Texas or not. I love Texas. I guess that's why you tend to see a decent amount of stories here on the Drabblecast set somewhere in that state. It's like a different planet out there in a lot of ways, where even the cacti are always showing off their guns. Because, like, they, they always look like they're flexing and stuff, right? Cactuses. We don't take too kindly to you alien folk round these parts. With your big, scary heat rays and your lengths of rope without baby cows tangled up in them. Got my eye on you, boy. They certainly have their own way of doing things, from toast to chainsaw massacres, and God bless them for it. They like their speed limits high and their baseball team scores low, their roses yellow, and their school buses abandoned in the woods, taped up and occupied by Satan. Ask any stilt-walking cooter from off-planet, or just out of state, if you want to die from ingesting millions of tiny microbacteria invisible to the naked eye, come to Earth. If you want to die by shitting yourself to death in the dingy bathroom stall of a Tex-Mex restaurant, visit the Lone Star State. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Travelcast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes if you get a chance. Tell a friend, spread the weird. 
Remember, the Drabblecast relies on the generous support of listeners such as yourself. If you have the means, consider making a donation to the Drabblecast via the PayPal or credit card options off our website, drabblecast.org. Help us pay authors for their stories and help us with our operational costs. We greatly appreciate it. If you sign up for an automatic $10 a month subscription, you get access to the Drabblecast B-Sides premium content feed with extra stories, interviews, songs, and other cool stuff each month. You'll find that option off our webpage as well. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Raoul Izzard. Raoul's a dog walker and father-to-be. In his spare time, he also teaches and writes stuff. His scribbles and doodles can be found on Inklings and Devlings on WordPress. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you to remember the Alamo. Oh,